Hey everyone, Joe here. In this episode, I had the privilege of chatting with Ian Eichen, an Air Force senior enlisted leader currently serving as the Command Chief Master Sergeant of Edwards Air Force Base in California. During our discussion, Ian shared his views on developing a culture of innovation and problem solving in efforts to get after our future problems. I learned a lot during this chat and I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. Live. Learning. Leadership. The Llama Lounge. Yo, welcome to the Llama Lounge, a dialogue on life, learning, and leadership. I'm Joe Bogdan, and I have with me a very special guest today, an amazing airman and senior enlisted leader in our United States Air Force, Ian Eichen. What's up, brother? How you doing? Doing good, Joe. How are you, man? Good, good, man. So, you know, we at the Llama team, we're spread like all over the world, right? And I think we, we discovered something um, recently was we're all experiencing COVID-19 life very differently, right? Because depending where you're at. For us in NorCal, I've kind of noticed that like during the morning when I'm going to work, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's not very dense on the roads. It's pretty um, quiet, you know, and then off base, you go to the stores if you need to get something essential real quick and half the people are wearing masks, half not. I go on on base, you know, at the BX and uh, the base exchange and the commissary, um, we're, we're requiring everybody to have a mask to go on. So, you know, there's just quite a bit of contrast to what's going on on and off base and across the world. I was wondering if you could share with us, like, what's it like where you're at right now in SoCal? Yeah, I think it's probably similar to what you're seeing on bases uh, across the Air Force. You know, we've got um, the, the wartime mission here, so I can give SoCal and then I'll give Edward specific. Um, right. so LA is very different from what it would normally look like. You know, you can see some actually pretty cool pictures of LA and see really nice blue sky. Um, and, and that doesn't normally happen yeah. because of the amount of pollution coming out of that, that daily commute. Um, so you've got, uh, a lot more people walking around, um, at the same time, people not going out shopping, not, uh, you know, driving their cars. So you don't have traffic. I can get through LA, if I need to get to LAX right now, I could probably shave, you know, two hours off my normal commute to do that. Uh, unfortunately, or I guess luckily, probably I don't have to, to fly. Um, so I had a bunch of TDYs that were scheduled during this time frame that all got canceled. And so now I'm able to hang out and take care of the space and take care of the airmen. Um, on base, it looks a lot like probably every other Air Force base. Um, you still have people moving around, but very few in comparison. Um, probably the, you know, at the commissary, at the BX, at the chow hall, things like that, it's probably down by two thirds. Um, you know, when I drive to work, I might only see two or three cars and in my parking lot, um, you know, in my whole building, there's maybe eight people there. Uh, I work right next to our wing commander. I probably see the wing commander, even though I work, work right next to him twice a week. And that's mm -hmm. usually because we're doing in-person town halls. Um, and so during our town halls, I have to, you know, we sit six feet apart. Um, we walk over there together with masks on, uh, and then we do our town hall. And then the rest of the time I'm in an office right next to him and I rarely even see him, um, cause we're trying to make sure we keep, uh, that, that physical, uh, separation. So, um, yeah, everybody's wearing masks to the BX and the chow hall and we, we, uh, our, our fitness center is still open, um, for, for limited hours to make sure we can keep people fit to fight. Um, but again, with a lot of stipulations as far as hand washing and cleanliness. So, um, but I think it's not too abnormal when you compare it to the rest of the Air Force bases. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have subtle differences like at uh, Travis. We don't have our fitness center open, but, you know, um, but that's pretty cool that you guys are able to still do that. That's pretty awesome because I, I, that is a thought. I was thinking, man, without the fitness center, I mean, I know I'm running outside a lot more, but, you know, some people might not find that suitable. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, real creative. Well, 
you figure we've taken away a lot of the other pillars or not taken them away, but we've, mm -hmm. the challenges have been put in place or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, blocks are put in place on some of the, the social pillars and uh, your mental pillars and, and these different ones. And so uh, the more we can keep as normal as possible, the, the better I think things will be. Uh, however, every day it's a risk decision. You know, if we had a, a huge outbreak and the risk um, skyrocketed on the space, um, that would change a lot of the things that are open and the way we do things. So right now we feel that um, by keeping people clean, by social distancing, you know, you can't do two treadmills next to each other. They're further apart. People are wearing masks in the fitness center. Um, and actually, because the weather's nice, more people are actually doing it outside. So we don't have as many people in the center as we normally would. Um, but as long as we can keep the risk down or at least mitigate that risk with, you know, proper um, PPE and procedures, then, then we're comfortable with it. But if anything changes and yeah. that goes for really everything on the base is kind of a day by day uh, decision. Has the risk increased enough that we can no longer mitigate it? And then do the risks outweigh the, the value of whatever that uh, service or that thing is? Um, and so it's it's an interesting leadership challenge for everybody because there's really no good uh, textbook on what to do. Right, because we haven't faced something quite like this before. So no. it's definitely stretching us quite a bit. And, and then we kind of talked about uh, right before we even started recording about how there are some things that can't have been coming out of this that are beneficial, right, as, as dire the circumstances. And one that you just kind of talked about was, I mean, you're a command chief, so you're probably traveling quite a bit throughout the year. And a lot of those TDYs got canceled, like you said. Um, have you been able to like kind of take advantage of some of that time that you got back? I'm with my family every week. So, there, you know, oh, during this time frame, I was supposed to probably leave every Monday and come home every Friday, uh, you know, on these T TDYs. And one of the difficult things about Edwards is uh, the closest airport is probably a two hour drive. Yeah. Um, that's with good traffic. And so, yeah. you know, we're usually if I'm doing a flight out of LAX, I'm probably leaving five and a half, six hours early. Um, mm. And so it, it's rough. It, it adds a lot to that uh, to that commute of actually flying wherever you're going. So um, that I'm not doing right now, which is good. Um, I'm missing out on some of those. You know, there were some pretty cool conferences and training events going on. I was supposed to bring a bunch of airmen uh, to an artificial intelligence conference in uh, uh, Silicon Valley, which was going to be really exciting. Um, they were going to learn some robotics and some AI and some uh, GPU accelerated analytics. And so, I mean, we were going to geek out there for about a week. Um, <laughs> there was uh, there was another entrepreneurship school that we were taking some airmen to. Oh, power just went on. Um, nice. <laughs> so we were. Uh, yeah, we had a bunch of stuff like that scheduled. We also had other TDYs scheduled that maybe we were doing a day and a half of traveling for uh, what you know amounted to eight hours of meetings. And um, so I think we're learning that some of those meetings are necessary. There are times where face-to-face -face is necessary. Right. Um, if you don't do much, apologize, printer's turning on. Um, if you good. don't do enough of that face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. um, you lose out on developing trust and developing that relationship that when you do do something stupid, because we all will, if that's the only thing you've ever, or excuse me, if you don't have much of a relationship, then that one stupid thing that you did is all people remember. As opposed to uh, if we've worked together for a long period of time and we've established that trust and then I do something uh, either stupid or something that you don't agree with, um, it's just one of many interactions we have as opposed to the sole interaction. Um, and so it's a lot easier to go, oh, I know him, he's a good guy, he, he means well, maybe there was just our wires got crossed or something. Um, and so there's a there's a part of that physical um, relationship that has to actually be there so you can talk and hang out and go out to dinner and do those things. But um, if you have those already structured and ready to go, um, then stepping back into this virtual uh, world that we're living in right now um, isn't isn't too difficult. 
Yeah, I mean, that's such a key point. I remember uh, when I was at my last installation, one of my uh, senior NCOs was talking to me and he said, man, I think we should be able to, we'd get so much more work done if we telework. And I was like, yeah, I know that there's a lot of efficiency that can come with teleworking, but sometimes we lose some of that effectiveness, especially as a war fighting organization. We kind of need to have that trust, like you mentioned, right? Well, I mean, we really need to have that trust to be able to, uh, to be effective as entire organization. And so there's definitely some risk there, you know, and and I, I am, I'm actually really excited to see how what the new norm becomes after this, you know, when it comes to utilizing technology a little bit more and being able to leverage um, our, our relationships that we've already had to be able to still execute. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think, I mean, just the fact that you and me are both home right now, it's uh, we're both right. West Coast, so it's 11 o'clock on the West right. Coast and we're both mm -hmm. home. Um, you know, I've been right. getting a bunch of meetings done. I've got a lot of work done today, but I'm able to kind of develop our schedule to change my schedule. So we're able to, to set up and do this discussion um, is, is huge. And I think the more of these that we can do, the it'll be beneficial for us. We develop this relationship. Now, if you need something, you're comfortable reaching out to me right. um, and I can help you out. And I think those are happening all over, uh, not just the Air Force, but but really all over the, the US. Yeah, for sure. So, man, so, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot for a moment right here. So uh, in, in the Air Force, you know, we often say every airman has a story. And I think for our listeners, um, they would just love to hear how you became the person you are now. You know, like, w w you know, where, how'd you grow up? I mean, a little bit about you. Uh, I'd love to hear about it myself as well. Yeah, I'm sure. kind of being selfish here. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I do the same thing. So, you know, yeah. I've got a, a podcast I play with. And one of the things that's the coolest thing is you can find people that you want to talk to and it's an excuse. Yeah. Uh, to really dig in and ask some questions. And if they don't like you go, man, I kind of had to, it's for the podcast. Heck yeah. um, and so, um, yeah. How much time do you want me to go into it? Oh, as much as you got, you know, I mean, I mean that that's the cool thing. That's the no, cool no, thing no. about podcasts though, but you know, uh, we, we are not exactly time limited, but, um, no, true. yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So, yeah. No, so, please. uh, let's see, uh, grew up in, in a suburb of Dallas, Texas, uh, Tried going to college for about two months right after high school. That was kind of the normal route that everybody does. And uh, realized I didn't have enough money and I didn't really like college. And I was working on a chicken ranch just to kind of mm. um, pay the bills. Um, realized that was not too much fun. And so went ahead and kind of plan B was joining the military. So I joined the Air Force in 2000. Um, was an intel guy. Went to, to Tinker uh, Air Force mm. Base. as my first base. Did about six years there and, and loved my time there. Um, and then moved on to Kadena for a couple of years. I did four years there, mainly with the 353rd SOG um, and the uh, um, 320 Special Tactics Squadron out there, which that I think those two assignments. And I think for everybody, your first assignment, maybe your second assignment really kind of shapes your mentality on things. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, learning everything on the as far as Intel goes on the, the AWAC side of things. Um, you know, got me into a lot of deployments and TDYs, so I got to learn a lot there. Um, and then moving on to special tactics and to the special operations community after that um, opened me up to this whole other world. Um, so most of the time while we were there at Kadena, we were deploying uh, and going TDY all over Asia, which was awesome. I had never spent any time in Asia. Um, so being able to, to spend a considerable amount of time in the Philippines and Thailand and India, um, and then working with those host nations, which was even cooler. So you got to not only work with somebody who thinks a little bit differently than you, but, but train another um, force how to do certain things. And then at the same time, really get immersed in the culture um, instead of just hitting kind of the tourist hotspots. Um, you you kind of live there with, uh, uh, with the local teams that we've been working with. And so you got to, uh, you got an appreciation and experience in the culture that I never would have got uh, otherwise. Um, you know, I've been to, to countries all through Europe and only done the tourist things because we only had mm. a little bit of time. And I, 
while they were fun, I didn't feel like I really got uh, in the weeds on them. Um, after that, I went out to North Carolina and, and worked for a little while out there and then moved to uh, uh, Germany. And I got to do four years. And that's kind of when I got out of the special operations world and back into Air Combat Command. Uh, time in Germany, time in Beale, and then now here at Edwards. So um, Intel guy for my whole career, but I was a, a weird type of Intel. So the one November zero Intel AFSC is one of those weird ones that kind of they throw in and let them do everything. You you don't get good at anything. You just get to try out a little bit of everything, um, which it kept things really interesting. You know, lots of training every time you got to a new base. Uh, and then, yeah, I did that until I got picked up, um, got lucky enough to get uh, picked up for this job. And so been doing uh, here at Edwards, the command chief job for about a year now. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying, too, is when you get to go to those countries and you get to meet someone who's more local there, right? You get to experience something that a tourist will never get to even mm -hmm. fully grasp, right? And that's that's the best way to travel I've always found. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, but you've seen you've had a very blessed career. Yeah, some pretty cool assignments, cool places, and got to see some amazing things. I think the big thing is so there's a there's random times in your career where you'll get you will get offered something. So you, maybe you'll get a phone call, and I got one of these phone calls early in my career uh, that said, "Hey, would you like to come work here?" And it's kind of a vague place and you don't really know much about it. And I was like, ah, I was nervous. And I said, no. Um, and then a few years later, I got a similar phone call and I said, yes. Um, and so I think always saying yes, there's all kinds of great opportunities, even if uh, the location um, doesn't seem like the best. I mean, I was at Beale. I was my last base and I got a when I got orders from Ramstein to Beale, there were a lot of people that were kind of like they were snickering and laughing mm -hmm. like, ah, you know, that sucks to mm -hmm. be you. Um, I've had fun everywhere. Um, I got the same reaction from people when I got orders from Beale to Edwards, and both those bases have been amazing. Um, if you really focus on all the the negativity about a base, you, you'll hate Ramstein and you'll hate Hickam and you'll hate all these really awesome spots. Um, but if you can focus on the good things, for instance, here at Edwards, we're in SoCal. I can get to the mountains. I can get to the ocean. Uh, I can snowboard and surf, and I can go to see any probably concert I want. Um, the weather's awesome, and we have an amazing mission and amazing airmen. So, I mean, you, how could you not like that? Uh, it's sometimes hot and sometimes there's snakes. And I mean, there's all kinds of things and we could focus on all that, <laughs> right. but we had the same thing at Beale. We had rattlesnakes all over the place. Um, so if you let that dictate whether you're going to uh, have a good time or enjoy a base, you're, uh, you're going to have a problem. But I think that mentality of always saying yes, and this goes, um, you know, I'll go off on a thing back in when I was a staff sergeant, I was in, uh, I was actually, I was in the 320 special tactics squadron. So I love that job. I was, I felt like I was actually doing some really awesome things. And then they wanted to move me back into kind of a, a leadership role into the operations support squadron. And I took that job kicking and screaming. I didn't take it. I was forced <laughs> to go. And I complained and I griped and um, I was really immature about it. And it turns out it was a great opportunity because there was a, um, there was a lot that I was able to do. I learned a lot. There was a lot I was able to develop as a leader and as a, as a manager um, in that office. And um, it shaped a lot of the way I think and I do things now. Um, and so stepping back, I look back at myself and I'm, um, it almost makes me cringe, you know, because I, I was so immature as that staff sergeant moving to a tech sergeant and not trusting the leaders above me that they knew what they were doing. And they were actually putting me in a place that uh, it wasn't about me. It was about developing others. Um, and so it was just it was an immaturity thing. Um, had I been a little more uh, it would have been a smoother transition if I would have accepted it. Um, but th there's lots of things like that. You see it all the time. Um, from people when you get picked up for certain jobs that you weren't planning on doing um, instead of going, you know what? I can learn a ton from this job. It's a great experience, even if I don't like it. 
Even right. if I don't like the AFSC or I don't like the location, <laughs> let me learn as much as I can. And then let me use the system to get out of here, you know, to apply for a remote or a cross train or, you know, you know, not letting one supervisor, one squadron, one base, one AFSC even uh, dictate your, your happiness, I think is a huge lesson learned. And it's one I wish I would have learned a little bit earlier. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point. I know I've, I've had a couple times in my career where I've been offered a job or told that I'm going to be doing a job and I was, it wasn't the sexiest thing out there. And I was like, oh, man, uh, one time it was uh, basically a secretary, but I was a uh, they, they called me an exec at the time. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do that. Um, got pulled up to that as a tech sergeant and I learned so much about attention detail, staffing stuff, you know, and it's like um, I pull I've created that position wherever I can go because I, I was telling my last um, uh, program manager that it's like, you know, it's like paint a fence. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you're learning stuff, you know, the old school Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, you're learning so much that you don't even realize you're learning when you're in these positions. Um, uh, oh, another yeah. one that I had was when I uh, got picked up to work at the Airman and Family Readiness Center as an 8 Charlie um, special duty. And I, I absolutely didn't want to go do that. I didn't even think it would fit, you know, my personality, but it rounded me out. And to be honest, it just made me a better human being. So I'm grateful for that opportunity, too. Yeah, it really, uh, some of the ones that I think people have or I wouldn't, as a staff sergeant, I don't know if I would have jumped at the chance to be a, a deployment manager, uh, an RA, you know, some of these um, different jobs and special special positions, not technically special duties, mm -hmm. but specialized positions around the squadron. I can tell you when you become a senior NCO, mm -hmm. man, you wish, you, you may oh, not yeah. want, have wanted to do those jobs, but you oh, wish yeah. you had a year as a UDM and a year as an RA and a year in the front office um, because being a senior NCO and being an NCO would be so much easier because you know exactly how to spend money. You know exactly how the deployment process works. You know right. how to staff things. You know how to take care of your people. Um, and those come with those jobs. And if you right. focus on the negative, you'll always find it. It doesn't matter where you go. Um, but if you focus on, hey, this is something new um, and I like to learn. So let me go ahead and, and learn this new thing and then see how I can tie these new lessons to the thing that I already know how to do. Um, right. And that, I think, makes you powerful. 100%. Yeah, as I was thinking, that's the one job that I regret that I never got an opportunity. To. I tell people all the time, unit deployment manager, because, you know, as, as as professional airmen, we should know how we go to war, you know, and we should understand how all those processes and I could study it all I want. But if I've never actually sat in the seat and saw, you know, it's still it's not the same. You know, you're not, I think, you don't uh, have that experience. I tell all my senior NCOs, go and get RA trained. Do mm -hmm. not, you don't have to become an RA. You don't have to sign the forms, but go right. through all the training and go through the regs. Um, right. Because most of us, we're not contracting officers. And the closest we get mm -hmm. um, to executing a contract is using that government purchase card um, and using those micro transactions. And so if you, you know, you see the person who knows how to execute unfunded requests and knows how to execute money, their flight, their squadron, their shop has all kinds of Gucci stuff because no right. one else knew how to do anything in time. They couldn't get their unfundeds in. They, they didn't go to the right sites to get them done. They didn't have the quote ready. And when it comes down to it, we've got money to execute. We have to execute it by a certain time. If I have a package ready to go, even though I'd rather spend it on this, but it's right. not ready, uh, a lot yeah. of the times that'll win. And so that knowledge will pay dividends um, throughout your career, just understanding how that's spent because it's, it's something you touch every day. Right. Absolutely. And what you're talking about, too, doesn't just, you know, reflect in the Air Force, right? It doesn't range through no. just an Air Force. It's, it's just any organization that you're a leader in. You learn about, uh, 
about that. And there's really zero, even if it's a nonprofit org, there's some type of resource, right? RA type, you know, function within that. So understanding that is huge. And the UDM piece is just understanding your craft, right? Yep. And whatever that might be. So um, yeah, that's that's great stuff. And I think, you know, it's a lot, it shows a lot of character too, when you're willing to apply yourself to something you don't want to do as much as you would to do something that you do want to do, right? No, I agree. Uh, I think yeah. it's, uh, it's a maturity thing. Like I said, I was right. mature. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I focused on, Hey, what I want to do, not how this will develop me right. or develop others. Even if, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't learn a thing, which is really hard to say. I think every job you're going to learn something, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, leaders at the time realized, or they thought that my, my skills, my abilities, whatever it was, was necessary in this place. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, hopefully I was able to, to help other airmen, um, and make them better. Um, and then as at the same time as, you know, I'm growing and learning as well. Right. And, and that maturity piece, like you just mentioned, too, is like if I would have got some opportunities a little bit earlier, I'm not sure if I would have been mature enough to really capitalize on that, you know, so yeah. it's a good point, too. So, hey, so I was looking through a lot of, um, you know, the posts that you have on social media and Air Force Quarantine University, which um, we kind of talked about in episode two with some of your champions out there. And, uh, you know, th- there's a couple things that I see themes are just, you know, continuous and one's innovation, right? So have you always been driven by this, this, you know, this concept of innovation and where's that come from? Because I see it constantly on, on your feed. I think, uh, so innovation is what we're calling it now. Um, if you Mm -hmm. talk to people at Edwards, you'll call it test. Um, Mm. they've been testing new things, but really when it comes, it's just solving problems. Um, yeah, all, all it, and some people will argue with me, you know, and we can get into the um, to the business model of innovation and what it actually looks like. And, you know, there's Stanford professors that will go round and round about it. But um, when it comes down to it, you are solving a problem. There's a problem out there um, and you are finding a way to solve it. Sometimes it's it's very quick and you'll, they'll call it a, a horizon one innovation or very low level. It's the thing that every uh, weapons and tactics shop might do. It's a team of people that their whole focus is to look at what we do every day and try to make it a little bit better. Um, Every squadron or unit, and, and at least at the matchcom level, also has a team of people that doesn't look at the day-to-day. They're looking forward, you know, a year forward, two years forward, and strategically focused on, okay, I think I know what problems we're going to have in the future. Um, how do I fix those? And that's really just focusing on that strategic level. Again, we didn't call it innovation 10 years mm-hmm. ago. We just called it on on plans, or uh, we had our, our think tanks, our checkmate, and people like that uh, that were focused on this stuff. I think the thing that's changed is – um, we're, we're still using it. We have people or, uh, organizations like AFWIC, uh, down or up at the Pentagon and, and checkmate these teams that are looking way forward. Um, mm. you know, figuring out what the new offsets are, the, the golden horde. If you look at those, right. those are some really, um, really cool technologies that are coming out that they think are going to be vital in the future. Um, all the way down to, uh, the squadron level where we figure out what's going on. The coolest thing that I think has happened is people at the squadron level. And now just instead of just focusing on squadron level problems, if at the squadron level, someone can see a strategic advantage that can be uh, done at a higher level at the, the MAGCOM or the, the half level, then they have a mechanism, whether it be through uh, Airman Powered by Innovation, through AFWorks, through these mechanisms to get their what would be an idea that would go through 30 layers of bureaucracy right. up to the highest levels. Now, we don't have the throughput to get a ton of them, um, but I think the way that we've done it has changed. So um, if it, that was a long way around the, the question, which was talking about solving problems. I like solving problems. Um, awesome. if, if, and I, I hate sitting there with the same problem every day with mm-hmm. it being solved. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Um, and so every time you, uh, um, you know, every time you make rank, you have a larger uh, umbrella, the things you can protect people from, from above, mm-hmm. and a larger umbrella of influence that you're able to, to actually affect. And so if you can use um, that position or that knowledge to 
solve more problems and it's great. And I think that's one of the reasons I enjoy learning new things like that UDM and the RA stuff. You right. know, now I have a problem with money. Well, if I really get into the regs and the rules and the, the process, I understand how to fix it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's been the focus. And I think, I also think, um, and this is, you know, my personal opinion, there's a, uh, it's really difficult to project, you know, if we're looking at a AFSC specifically, um, you know, I'm an Intel guy. I've done that for most of my career as an Intel guy. It's really difficult for me to tell you, um, even after 20 years of Intel experience, what our Intel people need to know five years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's to say that I know what our near peer adversaries are going to do. I know what our VEOs are going to do. I know what the new big thing is that's going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, in the eighties and in the cold war, I think it was a little bit easier because you kind of could figure out at least for the next year, what your big adversary was going to be. Um, and we don't have that control anymore because things are moving so dynamically. Um, the reason you need to know what's happening in the future is because, uh, it takes time to spin that up. So if I want to train, uh, let's say I'm sitting as a career field manager right now, um, for, for that AFSC, I need to figure out what we need to know. I then need to figure out how to get an airman there and I need to build a CFETP and a training process to do it. Uh, the problem with that is, is I don't know what's going to happen five years from now. Right. And so what we focused on and what, and again, personal opinion, what we've tried to do is focus on problem solving. I think that if we give uh, airmen a toolkit of lots of different problem solving tools, not to say that human centered design is the only tool, but it's one of the many, just like continuous process improvement, um, artificial intelligence, like these emerging technologies, if I can introduce them to all these different things, uh, then let's say next month they have an issue and they say, uh, I think I can use robotics or I can use artificial intelligence or I can use quantum to solve this problem or at least prototype. Uh, It's not this crazy technology that they've never seen. It's something that they're Mm -hmm. fairly, at least familiar with. They're comfortable enough that they know they can go to Google and they can um, they can look things up and they can watch some YouTube videos and at least play with it because we've done it a little bit before. And this is why in our uh, first term airman center, uh, in, so in FTAC, in ALS, in our professional development around the base, um, we do all the normal things. So we have the, the standard barn center curriculum that everybody else has for ALS. But then in our commandant time, our time that we have allotted to us, um, we've added design thinking. We've added emerging technology and we've added these things that we think are vital. Um, and I think the COVID situation is a great example of that. COVID shows up. We don't know what it is and what it's going to do, but start problems start arising or challenges around the base. And then some of these airmen that have, uh, at least at our base, the ones that had a, a knowledge of emerging technology and a knowledge of, of uh, problem solving techniques started designing. They started prototyping and designing and using their entrepreneurial skills um, to figure out ways to solve that problem. Um, and I think that's paying dividends right now um, for not only our base, but bases across the Air Force. And you can see it in the Marines and the Army and, and all over the place. So we're not alone in this. Um, but because I don't know what's going to happen in the future, if I can uh, give airmen enough tools uh, to solve any problem, and I think problem solving tools plus uh, the desire and the, the knowledge that you need to continue to learn, you pair those two things together. And I think you're really, you're best postured to solve almost anything. Um, you're not an expert, but you're you're postured to to jump into any dynamic problem pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I think that's an awesome point too. I mean, like as airmen, as a team, there's very little that we can't do. I mean, there might be, maybe we shouldn't do some things, but there's very little that we can't do when we have, um, like you said, all the tools that we need. And and you kind of you talked about Checkmate and a couple other programs for our folks that are not military or DoD related. What what are some of those programs that you're kind of mentioned? Yeah, so uh, Checkmate, the strategic studies groups, um, these are all, uh, the best way to describe them is 
think tanks at the Pentagon. Um, each of them kind of have their focus areas. So there's skunks and owls and they all have their own little nicknames. But yeah. really what it comes down to is you get some really smart people, um, uh, cross-functional teams. So you get diverse backgrounds and you put them in a room and you get rid of um, a lot of the other things. You know, they're not they're not focused on running a base right now. Their okay. only job or their primary job is solving problems five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, so they think through these things. They, they you know, that uh, those old school movies where you've got this just team of people just thinking in a room, that's kind of what they do. Um, and they constantly bring in new people. These guys constantly go out and uh, try to work with academia and industry and different, uh, different expertise so they can bring in all these new ideas. And then they look forward and go, okay, what are we think? What do we think the biggest challenges are going to be a year from now, two years, 10 years, 20 years? Um, and then how do we best posture the Air Force for that? They kind of figure that out. They start providing recommendations to the chief and the vice chief and some of the, the very big decision makers um, across the Air Force and the DOD. And then, um, you know, our, our leaders decide whether they want to move forward with that plan or not. And so it's uh, it's pretty cool. We actually have one enlisted. Um, we have one, a, one, a friend of mine, uh, Chief uh, Dutch May who's an Intel guy as well. And he's actually on the strategic studies group now. So they're starting to bring in more of that enlisted flavor um, because they look at the world a little bit differently. They have a different set of experiences and um, add a huge amount of value. Uh, there's another one, Blue Horizons at uh, Maxwell, and it's part of um, some of the officer professional development, but they take a few officers out of that course um, and they kind of give them a, a specialized curriculum while they're there and they attack big problems for the vice chief. So you've got these really smart officers that are there studying for a year and learning mm -hmm. What if we gave them some guidance at the very beginning of what we wanted them to study or at least what problem we wanted them to solve while they were there? And then they spent their entire time, you know, on their thesis working on problems for the vice chief. So um, we've got a lot of these little um, pieces around uh, around the Air Force. And so uh, they, they've been really good at, at trying to figure out um, what's coming next and how do we best prepare for it. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And, and what you kind of describe, even at your base, when you talk about adding those specific courses, I mean, you're talking about building culture, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how, that's what you're doing at that level. And I kind of wonder, like, just just my opinion is that if, you know, I don't know if we're doing that well enough across the enterprise, you know, we, about the innovation and in the, like you're saying, just problem solving, um, teaching critical thinking skills. And, and I think we're getting there and we're a lot better than we were in the past, but I think any organization, we need to, you know, whether it's this or where it's civilian industry somewhere, you know, that is such a key thing that we often don't necessarily spend enough time on, on that development piece uh, when, when getting to that goal. Well, I think culture, culture is also really difficult. Yeah. Um, culture is not a, not a thing that you can just tweak and change. Mm -hmm. It takes, um, mm -hmm. it takes years. And you know, if we look at the Air Force, we've got since 1947 to now, and we've got a culture of 330-ish mm -hmm. thousand. Um, that's yeah. just active duty. And then we include our civilians and our total force and then our retirees. And it's a large group of people, and they're all right. in these different subsections. So, you know, trying to uh, dictate culture from the very beginning is, right. is difficult. Um, that's one of the coolest things. I, uh, I, I don't want to put words in uh, Chief Toberman's mouth, but I got to sit down with Chief Toberman a couple weeks ago before mm -hmm. all this happened. And I was asking him kind of what his biggest challenges were right now. And um, his was they're trying to stay were at the time they were standing up the Space Force and they were trying to figure everything out. And all of the, you know, things like manpower and um, basing were just as important as things like what does the rank look like and right. what are we going to call these people? And I, I don't have any inside information. On oh, I was about I to think, ask you I, if you had anything. No, on not, that. At all, That'd be awesome. not at all. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is normally that would be 
you know, that's kind of an admin thing. Like that's a minor right. thing when you compare it to basing and warfighting capability. But because right. the culture is so important, mm -hmm. those decisions are just as important as everything else. Because if you don't develop the culture right from the very beginning, how do people know what they're coming into? How do you onboard people into your culture? What kind of ceremonies are there? What are the archetypes that are within that uh, culture? And so that's not an easy thing to do. Um, I can tell you locally, you know, one thing we've worked really hard on is to build that culture of, of test. We are a test wing. Um, but there are entities within our wing that are very much they the, the test pilot school. They know that they do test. They're they, it's kind of ingrained in them through academia and through uh, um, through their day to day lives. And we have these squadrons that test um, different aircraft or do maintenance for this test or logistics test. Um, and then we had these other um, units that were really focused on um, making the, you know running the base, the MSG, for instance. Uh, but they at the time a lot of them didn't feel that they were part of that test mission. They supported a base, and that base right. happened to do test. And so we had good culture. Now they had their own culture. They had an MSG culture, which was great. Um, but they felt far away from test. And so we've done a lot to bring the entire base together under that test banner, and it could call it innovation banner. You can call it whatever you want, but in the Hey, our job is to find new ways of doing things. Our job is to fail so the rest of the Air Force doesn't have to and they can learn from our mistakes. And so now, you know, in our explosive ordnance disposal, we have tests going on. We're testing out new um, gear, basically these new shorts that have uh, sensors on them. And so I can tell when, uh, when your hamstring's activating and I can, you know, if we add that with some big data behind it, we can start to see fatigue a little bit earlier. Um, we have tests going on with, uh, um, with body cameras and some artificial intelligence in our security forces squadron, um, some GPS trackers that we're testing out. Uh, we have tests going in our uh, force support squadron. So really turning everybody medical as well, turning everybody into a, you know, test security forces, test medical, um, where we use, uh, we use this location in, uh, in our airmen to try to find new ways of doing things. Anything good that we learn, we send to the rest of the Air Force. And anything that we fail on or anything that we mess up on, we again send that to the rest of the Air Force so they right. don't have to do it at scale. Um, and I think that test the idea of it and the idea of trying new things and it's okay to fail and we will expect experiential learning from the very beginning. Um, it's it's taking shape in other places than you know um, than it was just at the beginning. Um, and so it it takes time. It's not something that. Uh, we will be able to solve or we'll just continue it on and make it better while I'm here and whoever replaces me will do the same. Um, but yeah, culture is a, is a thing that takes a long time oh, yeah. and you've got to be very deliberate about mm -hmm. how you develop it and then be okay with it not moving fast. It's just you, you if you continue to uh, expect and incentivize and push and, and show the exact same thing from your level, it will, it, it will move down to everybody else. It just, it, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes 20 years. Right. Um, and so um, but just being really deliberate about it. You know, what are you, uh, wh what do you want to get done? What are the ways to get there? Um, if you really want to get into culture development, one of the the places I really like is uh, the Stanford D School. It's their design school. Um, and then right next door down the street really is a place called IDEO. Um, it's, a, um, it's a consulting company that does a lot of design thinking, but they do a lot of work on culture development. Um, and so that was kind of the first time that I actually stepped back and uh, kind of broke down a culture on a whiteboard and said, okay, mm -hmm. here are the things that I think are part of our culture and here are the ceremonies that we do and we stand behind and here are the different archetypes and how do I bring each one and move them forward into the culture that I'd like to to develop. Um, it's not an exact science, but it's really, it's really interesting. It's fascinating to me. So it's been fun to try. Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds just amazing. And some of the things you guys are doing down there, I got to get my eyes on that. That's, that's just sounds so cool. Yeah. I mean, like the EOD suit you're talking about with the shorts. I mean, I just got to see it. That's pretty cool. But, um, but you know, 
when it comes down to that culture, like you said, when you're establishing it, and if you're not deliberate, like you mentioned, you know, and it goes, it starts going left when you wanted it to go right. I mean, like it, it is so true. Like it's turning around a battleship, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, it could be just to- totally, I don't know how much time you'd waste because you didn't invest the time in the beginning. Trying to I don't, again, I, I don't even, so part of the culture is you didn't waste right. any time. You mm-hmm. learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you wish you would have done some things earlier, but it's all a learning process. Yeah. Um, even, even if we talk about QU, um, this is not the first time, uh, that, that, me and a team of people have tried to uh, do remodel the way we do professional development. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say that QU will take over professional development. I think it nests very nicely right under um, the Air Force, the Barnes Center, ATC, everything else that's going on around the Air Force. It just provides another outlet and a, a different way to do it. Um, we've tried all kinds of things. And each time we've got, we, we got a little bit smarter. We learned a lot. Um, you know, we've been, we've got airmen that have been using MOOCs and some of the things, the, the massive open online courses and the things that we're showing on, on, on QU, we've been doing that for a long time. We've been doing mm-hmm. professional development for a long time, not just us, but everybody. Um, but you change the platform, uh, you, you change things that are able to scale a little bit better. That's the nice thing about this platform is it can mm-hmm. scale to 20,000 a month, which we've done, right. or it can scale yep. to 200,000 tomorrow if mm-hmm. we had the right people. So it doesn't right. cost, doesn't cost any money. It doesn't cost too much more work. Um, and so that was some of the problems we had with some of our earlier prototypes is that we mm. couldn't scale them correctly. Uh, or maybe you have one person who's responsible for content creation. That's a nice thing here. I don't, I could not be on the site for weeks and content still comes through because we have yeah. 20,000 people creating content right. and the, the community, the crowdsource will tell us what content's good and what's not, um, based on what they go and look at and what they want to want to mess with. And the, the good content will rise to the top and not the bad, but the stuff that doesn't have as much of a use case will go lower. But it doesn't mean that it's not necessary or valuable. Um, so right. I think keeping it completely open to a mass amount of people um, is huge. And uh, we're letting a uh, another company pay for all the server space. And yeah. um, the, the, <laughs> I don't have to keep a, a website up to date and, and make mm-hmm. sure that we can handle all the um, the pings in the traffic. And so, um, which we've tried before on our own and we we failed at that and that's had plenty of problems. And so- um, you use those lessons learned to do whatever your next thing is. So speaking of that, when you guys, I mean, yeah, it is amazing how that thing has grown. Like, like you said, when it scaled up to 20,000 and like, I think it just hit 20, right. And it's probably yep. freaking already at 21, 22 pretty soon, but, and, and it's elevating so fast, but what, what are the discussions that you guys had on just, um, some of the risks that kind of comes with leaving it so open like that? I mean, whether it's, you know, I mean, you got airmen on their operational, uh, security, but also like just the fact that, and I've not seen anything negative on there, which is, I think is amazing, but I, I imagine there was some conversations that came up about some yeah. of the risks that you might be assuming. Every once in a while. I mean, there's always risk, and, mm-hmm. but there's no more risk from that than my uh, command sheet Facebook page. You know, somebody right. could go on there and, mm-hmm. and post something that's inappropriate and, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, we'll, we'll delete that. We'll warn mm-hmm. them and please don't do that again and we'll delete it. Um, there's been a few things and luckily the community um, is pretty good at uh, patrolling it. So as an, yeah. as an admin, I get a little alert that says, hey, somebody reported some content. And mm-hmm. I look at it and 90% of the time it probably should have been reported and we get rid of it. Um, and then every once in a while it's something and I have no idea why it was reported and I can't figure it out. So we talk to the member and we try to figure things out. But yeah, right. you do run that risk. But I think the, uh, you know, getting alerted every once in a while to maybe taking something down or maybe somebody seeing something that's inappropriate once in a while, um, you know, we can easily take it down and we're all adults and um, can kind of be held accountable for what we do. But there's so much good that that's a minor Oh, yeah, risk. absolutely. It's so... Uh, it's so small. And even if it was that risk would have to raise a lot before I would ever contemplate 
um, getting rid of it because I think the value is so big or so uh, so large. Um, but we, it was funny because the the original meeting was we were sitting with uh, my exec and my one of my ALS instructors, and we go, "How do we do ALS next week?" Because we're about to cancel our next course because mm-hmm. this COVID thing looks like it's going to be kind of uh, a big deal, and we need to be ready for it. And so we started looking at how can we um, do ALS online. And then we thought, okay, if we're doing ALS online, the kind of the scaling conversation, if we have 10 people in the room or a thousand people watch the same video, what does it matter? Right. As long as it's <laughs> worth it for the 10 people, then it was worth the time. Um, and if a thousand people watch it even better. Um, and so th- that was kind of a, a lunch conversation and we thought up some ideas and then got a logo done and, you know, had it on online, you know, 72 hours later. Um, we actually yesterday, so we, we put it online as kind of a, let's see what happens. And then it grew mm-hmm. so fast. Um, we were just kind of rolling with everything as it went. Um, yesterday we had our first, uh, we'll call it QU team meeting where we brought all of our QU admins in together and we talked and (laughs) we, we congratulated everybody on the awesome, um, capability that's now been created, but then also how do we become good stewards of this resource and ensure Mm -hmm. that it continues and ensure that it goes um, in the right direction. And so um, we all brainstormed and we thought through some ideas on how we think it can move forward. Uh, one of the cool things that we're doing that we uh, we're putting out today is um, at Edwards, we've been teaching civilian leadership school, which is uh, frontline supervisor training for our government civilians, um, because they usually don't get that level or get any sort of PME until later on in their career. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been pretty popular. And so we're taking, we're not recreating the entire CLS online, but we're taking portions of that and bringing in civilian education. So by civilian, I mean, it's more flavored or structured towards the GS, GG, mm-hmm. NH, NK, you know, some of our different wage grade, just government civilians. Right. At the same time, it doesn't matter if you work with a, a civilian, you know, you work for a civilian, or you just want to know things like deliberate developments, deliberate development. Absolutely. And so whether we use examples from the civilian world, from industry, from academia, it's valuable to you as a military member. And so I think it's going to be kind of dual or it's going to have a dual use case that uh, active duty, total force, civilians, anybody can really use it for development. So, um, but that came out of that discussion yesterday. How do we move forward? And because we have this platform to move quickly, uh, Monday, you know, I'll, I'll release the, the schedule sometime today. And then Monday, we'll have our very first class and we'll have a series every day at this time. We're going to have civilian leadership development um, where we'll talk specifically from a civilian focus. We'll have some more government civilians also teaching um, along with our active duty members. And so if, if we do it for a week and nobody likes it and it's horrible, no big deal. We wasted a little bit of time, maybe, or we learned a lot and then we move on from there. And so we started looking through how do we, what does QU look like post COVID? What does QU look like for the next six months and five years from now? And so starting to have those kind of strategic conversations, the coolest thing about it is when I talk about those conversations, it's a, it's a master sergeant, it's a tech sergeant, Mm -hmm. um, at a squadron level. And I say it, I don't say it as a bad thing. I say there is nothing about their position or their AFSC um, that puts them in the position to uh, guide or at least influence the future of professional development for the entire force. So their position, um, it's not in the the key duties and responsibilities. Um, Their career has not uh, set them up as far as the Air Force sees it to do that. However, um, they're the users of all of this. And so now they're in a position regardless of, of what their AFSC is and what their job is and what their base is, but they are in a position to positively influence the future of the Air Force and thousands upon thousands of airmen. And that is pretty cool to see. Um, and then to watch them brainstorm and watch them think through ideas and, and then be willing and brave enough to fail on those very uh, 
publicly because we do have so right. many followers there. Um, it is really cool. They're passionate about developing people and developing airmen. And I think they're going to bring up some, some really cool things um, that we'll continue to see. And then that team's just going to grow with more people with the same passion. Um, and then whether it's QU or something else, but uh, using some sort of virtual professional development forum, I think is just going to continue. Right. I mean, you, you, you're, that's so true. Would you just and it kind of blows my mind that you guys that was like pretty much your first meeting after you establishing it. But it kind of goes to the point of empowering these people with strong character to be able to push out amazing messages. I mean, yep. that, that's just is there's so much power in that. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, real quick, I wanted to I, so I was surfing through some stuff and I saw um, a TED Talks that you did over in Edwards. And you talked about something about entrepreneurial airmen. And mm -hmm. I just I mean, I, um. Real, what, what did you mean by that term? You know what I mean? So I you said think, we need to do more of that, right? We need to produce more of them. Yeah, so um, all those conferences and everything that I was talking mm -hmm. about, uh, that whether you, again, innovation test, entrepreneurs, that's what entrepreneurs are. Right. Entrepreneurs find a problem um, in the business space and then mm -hmm. um, either through a, pro or a company or a nonprofit, try to right. solve that problem. Um, right. Sometimes they do it, money is the motivation, but most of them that money uh, motivates them, they don't go very far. It's mm. the ones that are really have a passion for the problem and money comes as a, as a side benefit because right. the, the world values their solution so heavily that they're willing to pay for it. Um, and so, I don't know, I've always been a fan of the entrepreneurial spirit and the mindset of kind of exist or making this thing that doesn't exist and just, right. you know, out of nothing. Um, and so when we go back to it and that whole TED talk is about taking our airmen out of what they normally do, um, exposing them to a group of people that are different than them. In this case, we were doing a lot of academia and industry, um, a way of thinking that's different, not better or worse, just different. So they have another tool, as I was saying before, um, in their toolkit. Uh, and then they've got this network so that when they have a problem, artificial intelligence, quantum, all these mm -hmm. things, they just call an expert. You know, if we have an right. airman, we've got quantum ready to go. If we have an airman who has a quantum problem, we've got a Rolodex of quantum people that they can go mm -hmm. talk to. Um, those are a little bit harder because uh, quantum is not a huge thing yet, but it will be. Uh, if they have an artificial intelligence problem, we have a Rolodex of people that they can talk to or, or learn or train. And so uh, we've, again, my personal opinion is, is that the entrepreneurial lessons, you know, how do you build a startup? How do you fail? How do you get funding? Um, and for us, it's not always funding. Maybe it's just manpower. Hey, commander, I have an idea, um, but I need two weeks of not doing this stuff to focus mm -hmm. on my idea that I think is going to solve a big problem for you. That commander is investing in the airmen. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing that um, uh, I talk about in there that I, that I really stand behind is when, when an airman comes to you with an idea, first off, developing a culture, which we talked about, that where airmen feel confident enough that they have a say in the future and they can influence what's happening, even at the highest levels. That's a culture of a place I want to be a part of. Uh, a culture that we will train our airmen above all else. Meaning when, like when all that uh, innovation funding came down, um, we spent very little of it on projects. Almost every dollar we spent on developing airmen. Mm. Because I really do believe that uh, most of the ideas, at least the first couple ideas, we're going to fail in some way. Most of my ideas fail. Um, but when, when we invest in the airmen, when you invest in their development, we know that it's not the first idea, it's the 20th or the 100th idea. Right. That's the one that's going to be so amazing. Um, and so you're kind of backing backing that airman on anything they do. Even if I look at it and go, ooh, I don't believe that's going to work. First off, who am I to say? Right. Um, but I'll still invest in them, um, depending on how much we're talking about. And if it's just my time, oh, I'll invest in them all day long because I got yeah. a lot of that. I can, I can give them time if I, if I believe that the airman is, is capable. And so all of those together, 
the culture of not just taking what comes down, but actually using what you know to fix things, the culture of lifelong learning. So if I don't know how to solve a problem, I'm going to learn to develop the culture of, I don't know what's coming next. So I'm going to continue to get better at this and that I probably will mess up. You put all that together and that's a group of airmen that I want to be a part of. Um, and so that's kind of what that, that Ted talk was, a um, a culmination of what we had done up until that point. Um, you know, we started with these ideas thinking they would be uh, beneficial. And then it turns out in those situations they were, and then it was capturing what we thought the playbook was because we kept, people kept asking us really, you know, what was the checklist? How do we do this? Right. And, uh, th there really wasn't one except for, you know, uh, build a sandbox, build a place where airmen can fail. And they, they talk about it with maintenance or with, uh, pilots, you know, even with, these things are very dangerous. Um, so you don't want airmen to fail on those, but you need a place where they can. Test pilot school is a dangerous place. And, right. but, we, but they have to have a place they can fail. And we try to fail on the sim. We try to fail in our modeling. Um, we try to fail at certain things while we keep the safety of flight correct. Um, but those pilots have to learn how to fail so they know what it feels like. Um, and because they're pushing their limits and they're pushing an aircraft's limits, we have to create a safe space. Um, we, we've created auto or, uh, artificial intelligence algorithms and autopilot type things. Auto GCAS is one that allows uh, a pilot to pull too many G's accidentally. If they pass out, this thing will help save them. That is a huge thing, but it also wow. creates another sandbox in the air in some of the most dangerous environments that'll save our pilots. Um, and so creating that sandbox and then getting airmen uh, the backing that they need and the network they need and then just letting them go. Um, that was kind of the checklist that we ended up developing. But it was all based on everything we've talked about. Culture, entrepreneurial lessons learned, innovation, test. I think it's all the same thing. It's just right. which way you come at it or which way you think about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And those, those uh, test pilots always thought, man – Bless them. <laughs> Somebody's got to do that. And it's not this guy. Right? Yep. But that's pretty amazing. So no, they're, uh, they're, you take your normal pilot, you put a, right. a few more thousand hours behind them, and then you give uh, them a PhD right. uh, and, and just let them go. But, right. you know, what do you do when you have a, an aircraft that's never been flown before? Mm -hmm. who, who, right. who flies it safely? Right. Um, or you, uh, you know, one of the coolest things, again, it's a culmination of the test pilot school, but uh, so all the wing commanders here are, are test pilots. So our Finney flight, I was flying with my boss at the time. It was General Tykert. Um, and so his Finney flight, he wanted to fly one of our heavies. And so he wanted to fly a C-17. Um, I realized that morning he had never flown a C-17. <laughs> so most places you go, it's going to take them months. You got to go through a ton of schoolwork and you got to go through sims and all kinds of stuff before you ever get behind um, in the, in the uh, cockpit and actually start flying. Um, he got a checklist the night before. He jumped in that morning. He got a one hour pre-brief. Um, we jumped in. His instructor kind of showed him some things and he flew and he flew well. Um, because he had flown so many other aircraft, right. uh, heavies, um, prop, jet, turbojet, fighters, foreign aircraft, I mean, all kinds of stuff so that when he got behind it, he didn't have any experience in that aircraft, but he had experience with heavies and he had experience with that sort of system and that sort of avionics suite. Um, and he had so many other pieces that he could put together and then move forward. And I think that's another um, way of describing it. If we get airmen, tons of different experience, RA, UDM. Uh, first sergeant, just being a good NCO, uh, Intel, com, all these different things, 
they can, they're pretty much ready for almost any situation because they have they can take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They add it all together, and and they're pretty prepared. Um, right. Especially if they have that attitude that hey, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail fast, and then I'm going to keep going. And so uh, this is stuff we've been talking about and we've been thinking about uh, for a long time. I, it was nice to finally come to Edwards and see it in action and see that there's this codified approach uh, through test and test fundamentals. Um, but it, it's it's pretty cool to see when uh, in, the, in their capstone for test pilot school, they usually go and they can't do it this semester because of uh, COVID, but they go out to uh, France and they go to Japan and they go to these other countries and they jump in another country's aircraft for the first time. And so they jump into a Mirage 2000 uh, nice. or, or one of these other jets and they go, okay. And they just start flying it because they've learned so many things and kind of that, that capstone engagement is them trying it out for real. Um, and so it's just, it, it's a pretty cool thing to see. Um, airmen with no experience in this, but actually having a ton of experience. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a pretty cool point. Yeah. That, that, like I said earlier, like just a whole, what are you learning? Not even realizing you're learning, right? Like yep. you're, you're gaining things through everything. So cool. So, Hey, we're running out of time, but we, we always wanted to ask uh, a couple on these one-on-one interviews, a couple questions to okay. get maybe a little peer behind, right? The curtain of, uh, of your life. So one, one that, I, I see some books back there behind you. Um, do you have any books that you would say that like would be your uh, most recommended or, um, or maybe or most gifted books that you that you tend to give oh, out got, to people? I got tons. Um, yeah. So actually, if you look, if anybody were to zoom in, so this mm-hmm. is uh, we homeschool my oldest, and so this ah, okay. is actually yeah. our office is basically a classroom for homeschooling. Right. So since I'm teleworking, yeah. you'll see. Uh, science projects and ah. lots of different school. Uh, my, my, my wife was a Dodge school teacher for about 10 years. And so cool. uh, we got a lot of that. Um, so gifting books. So that was a big thing. A lot, you know, I talked about innovation funds. We spend our mm-hmm. money on books. We're about to execute right. another $9,000 in books for this base. Um, when you make staff sergeant at this base, uh, you get leaders eat last. Um, I, I love that book because it's really easy to go through. It's not a scary book. You know, if I were to give you, hey, you just made staff sergeant. Here's a stack of five dictionaries that you need to read. That can be intimidating. Uh, Leaders Eat Last is one that's pretty easy to pick up and put down. Um, and, and they've probably heard of, of Simon somewhere. And so they're able to jump in. Mm-hmm. We give the same thing to our tech sergeants, but we also give uh, usually we try to give Startup Way. Um, which is the second of Eric Reese's books. So he's got Lean Startup, Startup Way. He also has one called The Leader's Guide, which was a, um, I, I have one of them. It's a, it was a closed order thing that they did on Kickstarter. And so they're almost impossible to buy now. Um, but just really good books on entrepreneurship and solving problems. Um, if you make Master Sergeant at Edwards, you get those books, but you also get One Mission. So One Mission is the mm-hmm. follow-on book yeah. to Team of Teams. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody talks about Team of Teams and that's a great book. Um, I, I was lucky enough to, to serve under General McChrystal, um, and it, it's a great, great book. The problem that people have with it is they look at it and they go, of course you could do that in Joint Special Operations Command, but how am I supposed to do it? And so this is why I like One Mission, because the first, I don't know, 20 pages or so kind of sum, summarizes team of teams and then allows you – it shows you different case studies. Here's how an insurance company. Here's how um, a school. Here's how all these different companies and groups used this methodology to change uh, their company, to change their world. And um, and you can put it up or pick it up and put it down because they're small case studies. So that, again, easily digestible. Um, we also give away one called Creativity Inc. Um, I love Creativity Inc. as a leadership book. Um, it's the story of Pixar. Uh, and so if you, okay. it's something that most of our people kind of understand. They've seen Pixar grow um, since they were younger. But when you really get down to it is you have a company that uh, their mission, their mission-driven organization, very much like the Air Force. However, their mission is storytelling. Mm-hmm. They will tell the story 
That's it. It doesn't matter how much it costs. The story always reigns supreme. And then all of a sudden they get bought up by Disney. And even before that, they had investors and people wanted them to uh, make money this quarter. Well, it takes four to five years to get Toy Story out there, to get one right. of these great stories. And they've often have to, had to scrap an entire two years mm -hmm. to go back because the story wasn't right. And so if you focused on money, you would make very different decisions than if you're focusing on your mission. And so uh, there's a huge lesson there of, of looking, focusing on the mission and focusing on the people, um, even amidst a large bureaucracy. So we give that one out as well um, because we think it's really important. Uh, it's, Privately, if I've got somebody that I'm usually giving books to, I give them um, Let My People Go Surfing, which mm. was uh, written by um, the CEO of Patagonia. It's required reading for his whole company. Again, mission-driven organization. So it's a company without getting into, hey, we endorse this. You know, there's no endorsement of companies, mm -hmm. but the, the statement is their, their mission is um, wildlife conservation, and they sell jackets and sweaters and all these things in order to, to push towards that mission. And so I've always liked that one. Um, in my office, there's, I mean, you'll see uh, bookshelves like this where people mm -hmm. check out books. Um, but those are the ones I normally hand out. Um, I've been, actually, Chief Wright gave a bunch of us power of moments. And so that one's a good one that I've been giving to people about yeah. creating moments and creating that culture. Yeah, I love um, that book. Yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. an awesome one. Um, another one that I'm actually, so we're trying to build what, are, what is our, uh, um, what are we handing out next year? Um, or for the next 12 months. And so it looks like I'm probably going to add a book called uh, Resonate. Um, okay. So and there's a lady, Nancy, I always pronounce her name wrong, Nancy Duarte. She has a whole set of books, Slideology, Resonate, um, and there's a new one called Data Story, but it's really storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and so one's more on slide, Slideology is like, how do you build a PowerPoint slide? Or how do you build, if you get rid of PowerPoint, how do you build visual information that tells your story for you? Um, and then resonate how you capture people. She has a really good TED talk on um, the, the ups and downs of storytelling and the hero's journey, um, which is pretty interesting. And then data story is the follow on. It's the, the final book in that series right now um, that talks about how do you get this massive thing? I mean, I'm sure you've been in meetings where there's 20 different charts presented. Each one has a different X and Y axis. Right. It takes you 10 minutes to study all the numbers right. to figure out what are you looking at? <laughs> um, right. And so if, how do you take tons and tons of data put it somewhere for a senior leader to look at and actually create insights and decision-making intelligence out of right. it. And I think that's a valuable thing, whether the data is our UMD numbers, our money, our deployers, I don't know what it is, but all of us as NCOs and senior NCOs at some point are presenting data to somebody who needs to make a decision. Um, so I think Resonate and uh, um, Data Story are two of the better ones um, that are kind of more applicable. And so we're adding that to the list as well. And so really what we do is we take as much money as they'll let me spend on books um, and I go buy as many of them as I can. And then we, uh, we make sure that we build them around our professional development for the base. And so, uh, whether you're at, when you make staff sergeant, we have a staff sergeant course, we have a tech sergeant course, we have a majors course, we have aft tech for lieutenants. Um, we have all those courses and we want to make sure from the very beginning, you see that we're investing in your education and that you need to invest in your own development as well. We have that expectation and it's not that they have to read that book in 10 minutes or in 10 days. Right. It's, it's we we were going to continue to spend money and spend time giving you things that we think are important. I um, mean, this is kind of the the flavor. It also goes to that cultural discussion. You know, uh, a lot of culture is education, and so mm -hmm. if we want people to move a certain way culturally, um, we have to educate them that. And especially if we want our culture to be one in which people learn all the time and continue to educate themselves, um, then we have to do the same things ourselves, um, and then we have to stand behind it with our uh, you know our money and our our schedule. So. Uh, it, I'm sorry again, long answer, but I got a lot oh, no. of books for people. So no, that's um, awesome, man. We're gonna I put all those. Books. 
yeah, we'll put all those in the show notes too as recommendations for folks on this okay. podcast. And um, and I think that's awesome that you. So you guys, you touched on the educational piece of building that culture, but also allowing people to fail for the, you know, the experience as well. That because nothing teaches you better than experience, right? Getting that too. So that, that's amazing stuff you guys are going on. And uh, one last question for you. So. What rituals or practices do you do? Like, you know, everybody has their like little, uh, the rituals that they do. They might wake up, they have their coffee or whatever it is. What What's a daily uh, life of, of Ian Aishin look like? Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of unique until I started hearing what other people are doing. I think I do very something similar. So mm-hmm. I'm normally up at 4.30 so I can hit mm-hmm. the gym. Um, I, I try not to put, I don't put on a uniform unless I've hit the gym already or run or done something. Um, and so I PT until about six. I do about, uh, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on, uh, that's my drink, my coffee, you know, mm-hmm. throw on social media, check out the news, read if I'm, uh, reading something, um, Ted talks, you know, that's kind of my quiet time to get ready mm-hmm. for the day. Uh, and then get ready for, for work. I work until whenever I don't work anymore. I'm trying to be home by uh, five, five thirty most days. Um, so I can spend time with the family, um, hang out with them, cook dinner. And then, uh, uh, hang out with the wife or do I'll do more reading in the evenings. I try to get to uh, bed by about eight 45 or nine, but usually yeah. if I'm, if I'm into a good book at the time, that'll, I'll take another half hour to read right. um, before I go to sleep. But I try to keep that routine going. Um, Cause I, I don't know if I used to go to the gym after work and it didn't work out for me because I could sit there and go, you know what? I could run another mile or I could go home and hang out with my kids right. and the kids yeah. are always going to win. Um, so I'd much rather wake up early. Um, and it gives me a good way to, to start that day. Um, but yeah, that, that's my standard routine. What happens between the time I show up for work and the time I leave changes every single day. I, uh, I, I have no idea. It's wherever my exec and my commander tell me to go. Um, mm-hmm. and really whatever fires happen around the base to go put those out. Um, but, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so I love doing it. Yeah, I bet. And I could tell, man, the passion that you have, um, and, and everything that you guys are doing down there at Edwards and what you're doing personally, um, I know it inspires me and I'm sure it inspires tons of people. So thank you, thank you for everything you do. And thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit about yourself and all the amazing things you're doing and your team are doing. No, it's, it's the team's doing amazing things. I mm-hmm. just get to be vocal. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the coolest things about having a chief stripe. You get to yell really, really loud. And, <laughs> and so I, I want to make sure the things I'm yelling are awesome things that, that people are doing. And so I get to, I get to highlight them all day long. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a great place to be, but no, I want to thank you. So, uh, this podcast is huge. I think you're going to have a lot more people listening over the past probably month than you did mm-hmm. before, just mm-hmm. because you have people at home and maybe people mm-hmm. who weren't podcast people are, are now getting into it a little bit more, but, um, just getting, uh, you know, getting other people's thoughts and ideas out there and then using, you know, your passion for story, um, and your passion for development to help, to help them tell their story and get it out to a larger amount of people. And then hopefully, um, what you're doing inspires others. Um, and I think it is so far. So now I appreciate you taking the time, uh, to do this, you know, no one, I'm sure that the air force didn't buy you a, a microphone or internet or mm-hmm. headphones or any of this stuff. This is, yeah. this is a passion project for you. Oh, and yeah. so, um, it's, it's really cool to see, and I'm glad that you're using that passion to, to help out airmen. So thank you. Thank you. And, um, you know, we'll have to have you back on here again with the rest of the team and cause I'm sure they got even better questions for you, but, uh, we'd love to have you on as a, a repeat guy on Any, here. Anytime. Wait until, wait until this comes out. Cause when you yeah. get two, uh, <laughs> two views out of it, you may rethink that. Oh, um, man. But yeah, I'm here to help whenever I can. So just let me know how I can help. Perfect. Appreciate it. Well, everybody, um, uh, you know, stay safe out there as always. And, uh, llamas are out. Thanks brother. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the show. We'd love for you to connect with us at www.llama-leadership.com 
and on Facebook at facebook.com slash llama leadership and also on Instagram at llama leaders. And a big thanks to Mike Whitmer for the music. To check out more of this stuff, go to soundcloud.com slash Mike Whitmer. Thanks again. See you on the next episode.